Hi, I'm Adam Burton, the pastor at Central Baptist Church. Thank you for checking out this sermon. I pray that it encourages you and helps you to grow closer to Jesus. While as grateful as I am for you, please don't allow this message to keep you from connecting with a local church. If you're in our area, we would love for you to check us out at Central Baptist Church. God bless. Uh, there we go. Grab those, uh, grab your bulletins. Even if you're not a, a note taker, I think it might help us just to kind of uh, stay on track this morning and go ahead and take those Bibles out um, and uh, turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 this morning. You know, I know we've got several people in the in our church that are uh, that, that are good at working on cars. I'm gonna be just quite frank with you this morning. I am not one of those one of those people. You know, I mean, there's a lot of difficult careers out there, but I, I think being a car mechanic has got to be right up there with some of the most difficult. I mean, one, it's physically demanding job. You you come in, you're just covered to toe in oil and dirt and grime and no telling how much you must spend in, in laundry detergent. But also, nobody's really excited to come to see you. I mean, you know, some people enjoy going to car shopping and going to buy a new, a new vehicle, but, but who wants to go and spend money, a lot of times a lot of money, fixing up an old vehicle? Usually, it's a surprise to you. You didn't expect to have to drop several hundred dollars to fix a certain part. And then, so you, you get that, and then you go in, you're in a bad mood, and a lot of times we take it out on the mechanic. But have you ever heard somebody say, you know, like, look, I know this probably won't be cheap, but I, I want to spend whatever it takes to get the best replacement parts. And I don't care how long it takes. I want to make sure that, that you get it right. And so keep it a few extra days. And, and, and I want you to drive it around town just to make sure that everything's working properly. Now, I know it's more work than usually would, you'd have to put into it. And so I understand that there's probably an extra charge for this. But look, I, I'm going to spare no expense on, on this vehicle. No, usually the conversation goes more like a story that I heard about a, a man who was having car trouble. And this man was, was driving his car around and it was started to make a, a, a strange noise. So he takes it to the mechanic and he asks, he says, what's, what's wrong with this car? He's like, look, I keep good care of it. I get the oil change, all it shouldn't be making these noises. And the mechanic said, well, it looks like you need a new muffler. I was like, well, how much does a muffler cost? Organic says, well, this is how much a muffler is. And I couldn't believe how expensive mufflers were. And it's not like we're talking a, a transmission or an engine. So he asked the mechanic, well, I mean, I, I know it's probably best to get this new muffler, but I mean, can we not just fix the old one? And I really don't, didn't anticipate spending that much money on a, on a new muffler. So the mechanic kind of chuckled and he said, well, you're one of those guys trying to always take the cheapest route. <laughs> I guess we could, you know, try and uh, use some duct tape and uh, the, the, to keep it on. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think it's going to last very long. <laughs> the customer, honestly, was kind of offended at, at first that the mechanic called him cheap. But then he came to his senses and realized that, look, the mechanic was right. He needed 
to get a new muffler, even if it was going to cost money that he didn't want to pay. You know, there's times when when we need to get rid of the old in order to replace it with the new. It's hard to do. It's hard, especially when it costs us or, or maybe we've become so attached to that old thing that we hate to see it go. I mean, do you have something maybe that you're, uh, uh, that you can't really get rid of, whether it's a, an old stuffed animal or a blanket? Maybe it's a, a tool set that you really don't need anymore. Those golf clubs that are in the garage that haven't seen a course in a decade. Or maybe it's even an old muffler. You know, many of us hate getting rid of old things, but sometimes our old baggage keeps us from enjoying new things. But even more so, our old baggage can be dangerous, especially when we might lose a, a muffler driving down the road. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, the Bible says that we are a new creation. It doesn't say that we add a little bit on to who we already were. It says, no, we are a new creation. So what does that mean? Well, in today's sermon, we're going to look at what it means for us to put on the new self. Put on the new self. And the first thing that we see in this role of putting on the new self is that we must change your perspective. You must change your perspective. We read here in Colossians, beginning in verse chapter 3, verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So to put on the new self, we must first change our perspective. Now, Paul here is is speaking to the the Colossian Christians, the, the, the followers of Christ that are in this new church in the city of Colossae, and he tells them to he says to set your minds to say, or sorry, to seek the things that are above. To seek the things that are above. And then next he, he tells them that they are to set their minds on things that are above. Well, what's above us? I mean, is Paul talking about the clouds or the, the sky or the, the sun? No, he, Paul's not speaking of the physical. No, he's telling his readers to seek heaven. What is it that you think of when you think of heaven? What do you think of when you think of heaven? Do you think of the streets of gold? Maybe the mansions or maybe it's a, a loved one who has left the earth. You know, Paul's not talking about the physical beauty of heaven although it is. Now, what he's telling his readers here is that they are to set their minds on the one who is in heaven, 
God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, heaven is a place of absolute beauty. It's greater than we can even imagine. But what is it that we are to look forward to most in heaven? I've heard people say, you know, sometimes things that what I want to experience most is to, is to see that be reunited with my loved one, almost like an old family reunion. Or, or I'd like to, to see Paul and to ask him, why in the world did you say that in one of your letters or see Moses or, you know, all these. I've heard others, well, you know what? My body has hurt for so many years. I just can't wait until I get that new body. To have a body that doesn't hurt, right? Amen. Maybe you know, life's just a struggle for you here on earth. It's hard to, to pay the bills. It's hard to, to, to keep going. And you've always got worries on your mind. And it'll be nice to not have a care in the world. But I'm here to tell you that if, if we have set our minds on on the things above, on the things that are above, the first words out of our mouth should be none of those. But it's that I get to be with Jesus. I get to be with Jesus. Look what Paul says here in verse 4. And he says, when Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, when we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, then our life becomes His life. This is what it means for us to surrender ourselves to Him. I'm here to tell you, there is no greater title that we could ever receive than to be called a son or daughter of God. So if we desire anything less than Jesus, then we miss the point of the gospel. For for Paul tells us that when we seek Jesus, oh, we receive him in glory. But the danger that we face is that, honestly, is that we love this world so much. I wonder how often do we think of being with Jesus in heaven? I'm not saying we should have a fatalist view and be like, well, this is, I'm just a miserable person. And you know what? It's got to be better than where I am now to be with Jesus. No, I'm not speaking of that. No, Jesus tells us, actually, Matthew chapter six, he says, but seek what first the kingdom of, of God and his righteousness, then all of these things will be added to you. See, we, leave, we live in a sinful, in a fallen world. But although it's been this way since Adam and Eve was in the garden, I felt it, especially in these last few years, in the global conflict that is all around us to the pandemic to just the mean-spirited division in the world, to the unbearable suffering of people that I love dearly. And I find myself crying out to God often, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. 
Because when Jesus comes, he is going to come and make everything right. Everything will be the way that it is supposed to be. And he, he's going to restore the world and everything in it to what it was before sin entered the world. So to be a follower of Christ means that we must change our perspective and seek first the kingdom of God. Now, looking forward to to heaven doesn't mean that we abandon this world that we are in and we just sit around like we're at the airport waiting for our flight to be called to get on the plane. No, to put on the new self also means that we must, secondly, put sin to death. We would put sin to death. Pick it up in Colossians uh, verse 5 here in chapter 3. Paul tells us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Here, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We must put sin to death. That's how we maintain a kingdom focus. It's how we seek the things that are above by putting our sin to death. And here Paul gives, lists out several sins. He, he tells us to, to put to death uh, the, what is earthly in us, things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now it's good to, to remember that Paul is, is writing this letter to a specific people who are the, the, the Colossians, the Christians, in a specific time in the first century. So we can infer here the reason that Paul is putting these sins in this letter to the church, that it's something that the Colossians struggled with. You know what I find crazy? Is that 2,000 years later, we see the exact same sins that, that we struggle with. I mean, do you think that it would be safe to say that we live in a sexually immoral society? Yeah. You know, we think that issues like adultery and homosexuality and fornication, which we now call premarital sex in order to make it sound better, or abortion, infanticide, just to name a few of these sins that would fall in these categories, that that they're modern inventions. No. They've plagued every civilization. But as Christians, when we set our minds on God's kingdom, we must put these sins to death. It's serious business. 
Paul tells us that the reason that God, that, that, that sin is the reason that God's wrath is coming to the world. Like Jesus said in Matthew, he said, if your right eye causes you to, what, to sin, he says to tear it out and to throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body is thrown into hell. How's Jesus telling us that we all need to get spoons or whatever and start, and start you know, scooping out our eyeballs and running around with patches or, or blind? That if we, if we get rid of those physical things, or, or as in old, in, in, in pre-medieval times, they, that if you were to steal something, they would just chop off your hand so that you couldn't steal anything else. It, it, would that solve uh, the sin problem? We wouldn't struggle with sin or lust or theft. No, not at all. No, he's using this imagery here to show us how important it is that we put these sins to death. Because sin does not start with our eyeballs or our hands or our feet. No, sin begins in the heart. It starts with our desires. It starts with what we seek. It's wanting things that, that aren't ours. Whether that's somebody else's spouse or whether that's something that you have not earned. Now the verb that we use here to, to, to put um, in the original language, it's it's this grammatical tense of, a, of an ongoing action. You see, becoming a, a Christian does not mean that you, that you no longer sin. Go back here to verse 5. It says, put to death, right? It doesn't mean that you no longer sin as soon as you say, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus. And I, to be honest, I wish it was that easy. No, dying to sin is a daily battle. Right? It means that we wake up every single morning and we choose to live with a kingdom mindset. And then Paul goes on to, to list some other sins. He, he says now we're dealing with anger and wrath and malice, slander and obscene talk. Now sometimes we can focus so much on the detail of the specific sin itself. And a lot of times we use that to think, well, Thank goodness the sin that I have isn't, um, isn't included in this list. No, I mean, the big point here is that Paul is saying that we must put to death all sin that is in our lives. See, any real Christian has a desire to follow Jesus. Like we feel bad when we sin and we hope to do better. But there's a difference between feeling bad over our sin and putting it to death. We can't truly live for Christ if we just say, well, look at my sin. It's, you know, I'm not the best that I could be, but, you know, it's, I'm better than, uh, you know, others. And it's in the grand scheme of things and, the, and all the problems of the world, it's really not that big of a deal. So many of us, it's like we're going around through life with a, a duct tape muffler on our back end just waiting for the day that it falls off and destroys the car or harms others. 
See, we must get rid of the old sin and we must replace it with the righteousness of Christ. Now, look, it's easy to say that we must do it, but it's hard. Oh, it's hard to do. But we must never give up. Like what author Kent Hughes says, he says that the more that we put off the old nature, the greater freedom we have for the renewal of our, of our new self according to the image of God. Now, I mean, shared with you in the past, and I enjoy you know, running long-distance races. I'm not a consistent runner, though. You know, I'll go through seasons where uh, I'll run a lot, and then there's other seasons where I don't. Usually it's when I step on that scale and I start seeing the, the number inch higher and higher that, you know, I, I decide that it's time to get out and to, to pound the pavement. If you've ever just got started into running, then you know those first few weeks are really hard. <laughs> you know, um, it's because we're out of shape. You get winded, it's hard to, to breathe, but a lot of that's because we have some extra baggage there. But after a few weeks of consistent running, you realize that, you know what, hey, it gets easier. Because the more that you run, the more that you consider yourselves, you identify as a, as a runner. You're not getting up in the morning debating, well, look, I, no, I don't know if I'm going to lace up my sneakers today. No, you do it out of habit because you're a runner. That's your identity. And then after you, also after you've been running for a while, you you notice that your feet and your knees, your legs, they don't hurt as much as they used to. Why? Because the more that you run, the more that baggage falls off. The pounds come off and you're lighter. And you feel better. Your clothes fit better because you've lost those pounds that made it difficult to run. You see, when we consistently put sin to death, it gets easier. Because we no longer identify ourselves as sinners, but we consider ourselves children of God. And the more sin baggage that we lose, the easier it is for us to focus on the kingdom of God. But the problem that I have when in running is that after I'll run a big race, whether it's you know half marathon, marathon, what have you, is that I take a break from running. You get that medal and you feel great. You get that runner's high and it's like, wow, man, I've done really, I've accomplished something big. And then you're like, I've earned a little break. You only intend to take a, you know, a few days off from running, but those days turn into weeks and into months before you know it you regain all of those pounds that you lost and you feel miserable the same is true of putting our sin to death see we can never let our guard down because when we think that we finally arrived and we get a little bit lazy we don't focus on putting that sin to death every single day and we regress backwards and we feel miserable. 
And I found that when we're not focused on putting our sin to death, we, we really don't have the desire to go to church or the desire to share the gospel or the desire to read our Bible or the desire to pursue the kingdom of heaven. So once we change our perspective, once we put our sin to death, then we are to live for Christ. Pick it up here in verse 12. We see these words put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Oh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to live for Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us a list of these qualities. We are to be compassionate, to be kind, be humble, be meek, be patient. Do these sound familiar? They should. You might know them as the fruits of the Spirit. We are to put on these qualities. These things are what define us as followers of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are to be compassionate. You are to be kind, humble, meek, and patient. But then we get to verse 13, where where Paul, I think, kind of pierces our hearts a little bit. He says that we are to bear with one another. What does that mean to bear with one another? Well, it involves patience, but in another word, it, it means that we, we are to put up with other people. Even when maybe they get on our nerves or they do things that we don't like. But not just that, we are to forgive each other. You see, if we don't have a kingdom perspective, and honestly, we don't really see the need to forgive. You know, if we don't really see our sin for what it is, if we don't see our sin for what it is and for why Jesus had to die, then we don't see the need to forgive. But look at what Paul says here in verse 13. It says, you must forgive. It's not optional. It is a requirement to be a follower of Christ. Also, we see in in all of these uh, attributes is that these qualities require us to be in community with one another. 
I mean, to be honest, it's easy for us to be compassionate and kind and humble, meek and patient when you're the only one. You know, you don't, you're not around anybody else. You know, it's not really, you know, bearing with one another when you're the only one. No, we must live in community with others. And specifically, as Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. Living for Christ can be summed up into one word. And that word is to love. But then Paul gets a little more specific in his application before he kind of gets vague and sums it all up. And look at verse 16 here. He says for us to to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. To live for Christ means that you live in the word. How often do you read the Bible? When you're driving to, to work in the morning or in the afternoon, do you think about your Sunday school lesson? Or are you tuned in to talk radio complaining about how, you know, bad people are? When you leave out of here on, on Sunday, how many of you can remember any of the points from the, the sermon? You see, our, our minds aren't empty. We don't have empty minds, no matter how absent-minded somebody thinks they are. No, it's the question is, is what are we filling our minds with? You know, I'm afraid one of the reasons that we neglect the Bible is because we have not removed the earthly clutter from our lives. You may even think, well, look, hey, I tried the Bible and I just I just don't understand parts of it. And look, I'm be frank, that may be true. But I'm amazed at how many average men know the details of complex football schemes. Maybe the reason we don't understand the Bible is because we haven't spent the time to understand it. But for me, it really isn't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that I have trouble with. Sadly, it's the, the parts that I do understand. Like how Mark Twain puts it. He says this, he says, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those which I do understand. That scares us when we know what the Bible says, but we refuse to obey it. But I'm here to tell you, ignorance is not an excuse. We are to be in the Word, but we are also to be singing. Whoa, kind of odd you elevate reading the bible with singing that's why we put so much emphasis on music in church it's why we have a, a choir and a worship team that spends hours every we don't know if you realize but 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 our musicians every sunday morning they're here at 8 30 to make sure to run through and to make sure everything is as well as we can get it practice every single wednesday night for Multiple hours during our choir season, we got to enjoy the beautiful cantata 
you realize how many dozens of hours that each choir member put in to prepare to worship. We spend this time not because we want to be the best performers that we can be. No, because how we sing reflects our love for God. That's what Paul is saying here. Do you sing to church? Now notice I didn't ask, are you a singer? Now there's a difference there. I don't think everybody's called to stand up here on stage with a, a microphone and sing in, in harmony with one another. There's some people that no matter how hard you try, you can't carry a tune in a bucket. But that's not the question that is asked. It's not whether or not we are a singer. It's do we sing? Now, as often as I'm preparing the sermon throughout the week, it's hard for me to, to get through the sermon prep without taking out my guitar and, uh, and singing a hymn of praise. I mean, as I read a passage, the first things that come to my mind are different songs that fit within the scripture. And I'll take it out and I'll, I'll sing. Look, nobody's around. Or at least I don't think there is. It's usually not polished, and I'll usually get the words wrong. But I sing because when I dwell on the Word of God, I can't help but be thankful and desire to praise Him. See, you can tell how much a church loves the Lord by how they sing. Lastly, Paul here, he wants to make sure that nobody feels left out. And so in verse 17, he says this, it says to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, some of us might struggle with what the word everything means, and it really, it means everything. When you go to work, you work in the name of Jesus. When you go to that ball game, you, you do it in the name of Jesus. Jesus, and, you know, maybe hold your tongue on that back call. If you're playing golf, you do it in the name of Jesus. When you mow your yard, you mow your yard in the name of Jesus. When you watch TV, that'd be a little hard. You think about watching TV in the name of Jesus? Whatever you do, whatever you think we are to do it, in the name of the Lord Jesus. But we cannot do it if we are not, if we have not changed our perspective and focus on the kingdom. We can't do it if we are not dying to our sin. And we can't do it if we're not living for Christ. So what's next? Take your bulletin out on the back page. Some blanks there. It says, what's next? What are you going to do with the word that you have heard this morning? I asked earlier that we would pray that, that God would be in our presence this morning, that he would speak to us. And, and I hope that's our intention every single week is that 
we expect him to speak to us. But when he speaks, are, are we listening? What is he telling you to, to do? What do you need to do to change, to have more of a kingdom focus? What sins do you need to put to death? Stop treating them like that stray cat that keeps coming. You know, you, you don't lie, but then you, you feed it a little bit, and of course it's going to come back. Get rid of that sin. And how are you living for Christ? Are you living in the word, in worship, in singing? And how you care for others? Can you say that everything that you do, you do in the name of Jesus? So one of the dangers that we have when we kind of hear a message like this is that we it can be kind of so overwhelming that we're like, where in the world do we start? Simple. You just start. It's like the idea of running a marathon. I can never run 26 miles. No, you couldn't. But you don't have to. All you have to do maybe is just put your shoes on. Remember, it's consistent daily focus. So as you leave out of here, I want you to hope you have a pen, pencil. Sometimes it's good to put it to paper. I want you to write down. What's next for me? Thank you for listening to this message. To listen to other messages and to learn more about Central Baptist Church, visit our website at cbcmaysville.com. 